Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, June 10th, 2011. This week, episode 211 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Joe, it's another Friday. Good to work with you. Tomorrow's weekend time. Good day. Oh, good to be home. Uh, At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold. All right, today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question. We're going to do a little overview of the Indoor Air 2011 conference. We've got Carl Grimes joining us today to help us review what happened here over the past week. I also just came back in from Austin, Texas, and uh, we've got a lot of interesting information for listeners today. We uh, will then go to our halftime and, of course, we'll bring in our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, go back to the interview, and then we'll round things up. Check out the Facebook page we've put up at IAQ Radio Program. And before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, you can contact us by following the link on the show invitation, and you can listen live streaming on your computer. You can download the show later by going to our website. You can stream it from the homepage at iaqradio.com, or follow the link that says go to the show. That uh, link also has directions on there. You go to the show. You can download the shows from the TalkShoe website. You can also download shows from iTunes. We have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC continuing education credits available. All you have to do is email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, and I will send you a registration for those. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust that iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, just text in your answer. Congratulations. To Andy Krasowski, Concast Metal Products and Mars PA, for another correct answer. Andy was the first person to sort through the clues and answer last week's trivia question by identifying thus always to tyrants as the meaning of the Latin phrase sic semper tyrannis, which is the Commonwealth of Virginia motto. The IAQ Radio trivia question for Friday, June 10th, 2011 has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. In what year was the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate founded? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. We, we've got uh, Carl Grimes with us. Carl is the president of Healthy Habitats in Denver, Colorado. He is the chair of the IESO Procedural Development Committee, the president of the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the author of Starting Points for a Healthy Habitat. Also on the editorial advisory board of the Indoor Environment Connections newspaper and an instructor for the Healthy Home Specialist Certification. Carl's a longtime industry veteran and a very big volunteer within the industry, speaker at numerous conferences, and we're happy to have him with us. I think we've got some music for Carl. Good day, Carl. Do we have you on the line? Yeah, good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you. And I know we just saw each other, but we haven't had you on the show in a long time. It's probably... uh, it was so long ago that the, the intro for me was uh, Beethoven. <laughs> and now it's been such a long time, it's some other kind of music genre, totally different. Yes, Bebo. There you go. Bebo. Bebo. Well, Carl, you and I just spent the week at Indoor Air 2011, the uh, International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate's signature conference there. And I've got some, some in, you know, some, some, just some general kind of overview of my thoughts on the conference. But before I go into that, why don't you go ahead and give us some of your general observations about how you, you felt the conference went? Well, first of all, the conference went very well, and I want to express my appreciation to the uh, uh, University of Texas and uh, ISIAC, particularly Richard Corsi and uh, Glenn Morris, and Richard is the, the president of Indoor 2011, and uh, Glenn Morrison was the, the technical director of it, and uh, also Don Weeks, who was instrumental in telling IAQA about it, and uh, he's the co-chair, uh, or the co-technical director, I should say. So I want to make sure that uh, they get the, uh, their recognition. It was a, um, I've been to lots and lots of conferences by a number of different organizations, both with inside and outside of our industry. And this is one of the, the better, smoothest one, well-organized, um, fewest glitches, and one of the highest 
quality, not just technical in terms of, you know, like uh, uh, P, uh, uh, PE or uh, PhD squared type presentations, although there were plenty of those, but they also had a special focus on practitioners, and uh, they were there, um, and there were a number of, of, a significant number of presentations that were either for practitioners or even by practitioners. It was, um, I was like, like you, Joe, it was, uh, there was so much going on, I felt like I needed not only to be cloned, but to be cloned two, three, four times, because of all the, I don't think I missed a, a, a session there, but there were still two to three times more others that I wanted to get to, so I'm going to have to really dedicate myself to some time to uh, going through the proceedings and so forth. It was one of the better conferences in all aspects, including technically and, and how um, relevant it was to, uh, to what we do. So I saw, I heard somebody, I think it was Lou Harriman, describe it as you want a sip of water, and what we got was a fire hose full blast. <laughs> that was kind of, kind of the way I took it. And I think they had some things there, Joe and Cliff, that are going to change the industry. Well, that's, you know, Carl, let me give a couple numbers real quick. We had over a 1,000 people there representing 38 countries, and there were well over a 1,000 papers and hundreds of poster presentations. It was, it was really impressive for me to see. And I guess the, the overriding impression I got was that what we do when we are dealing with indoor air quality, whether you are a practitioner, someone who manages a building, someone who's doing consulting, contracting, whatever the whatever it may be, what we do is very, very important and will only become more important over time, I think, is is the overall impression that I got from the from the conference. Um, and I, I like you want to make sure I thank some of the people at ISIAC, the uh, Dr. Corsi, Dr. Glenn Morrison, Don Weeks and others. They were they were so welcoming and really put on a great show uh, in Austin. It was great. And the European group, the Asians, it was just fascinating to uh, talk to all those people. Uh, another thing I thought was interesting was that even though indoor air quality doesn't get as much funding as some of the other environmental issues, um, you know, and there was a lot of concern about funding and the future of funding, what I thought they did, which was interesting, is they tied indoor air quality into other emerging issues that do get a lot of funding, like outdoor air quality. And they talked a lot about the connection between indoor air quality and outdoor air quality. You know, most of us think, you know, we assume that people realize there is that connection, but I don't think people always do realize how important that connection is and how we bring air into buildings and what we do to it on the way into the buildings was a big topic of discussion. They also tied in productivity issues and, and the effect of indoor air quality on productivity. They had a lot of sessions on weatherization and whether or not trying to save money by saving energy was really the wisest way, is the best way for me to put it, to try and save money when you compare the productivity you gains from having good indoor air quality the energy savings essentially pale in comparison. So they really had some interesting ways of bringing that type of information into 
the realm of indoor air quality. And the other one I thought was fascinating was they had Dr. Venter on as a presenter, and they talked about the genomics and the gene sequencing that's going on and how that will affect indoor air quality. And I want to go into that with you a little bit later, Carl. Cliff, did you have any uh, any comments? Okay. Finally, the last thing I would say, well, two other things. One, it was so good to see so many young people. You know, I talk to Dr. Weil all the time. He mentions AIHCE, and, and the, the attendees there are getting older and older, and uh, they don't seem to be bringing in as many new people. This place was loaded with new people. It was great. And the number of women was just a real positive in from my perspective the fact that we have you know all i hear about on the news is that women don't go into the sciences and we don't have enough women scientists well in the air indoor air quality folks in that arena we are getting more and more and they are a huge part of the new generation of people entering the indoor air quality world and these women are hardworking, intelligent and dedicated to this indoor environmental issue. So it, it was fascinating from that perspective. And finally, I, I really should mention there were a lot of government agencies and personnel that were at the show. They were very engaged. They were asking a lot of questions. They were interested in the proceedings. They actually gave presentations. And they obviously have a financial investment and stake in a lot of the research that was there, but their knowledge about the issues was it was a a good thing for me to see and i don't know about others but it was nice to know we do have some people within the government that understand this issue and are trying to do something about it carl anything you'd like to add with respect to general observations uh, yeah uh we also uh, need to thank uh dr richard shaughnessy he's the president of the act yes and he has uh, of course a very major role in there also i i just wanted to uh, second, your comments about uh, women, not only did they it look like this, probably close to not 50-50, but maybe 60% men, 40% women of, uh, of the young people. And uh, there was a large student contingent from University of Texas that had uh, at least an equal representation of women. But of us older ones, too, look at how many women were presenters. And these, these are people that have been in the industry and academia and research and so forth for quite a number of years to reach that point to where they are presenters and, and, and industry leaders. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily a male-dominated um, endeavor anymore, and it certainly, it, certainly, it, uh, it certainly isn't going to stay that way. But there's two other kind of numbers that I'd like to throw out, and I can't remember the exact number, but of the 1,000 people or so that were there, I think it was 547, they said, were from, from the U.S. That's – where were the others from? Everywhere else in the world. <laughs> that was key. The largest contingent was from China. Uh, but there was the lar also a large Japanese contingent and some people from India and, um, of course, a lot from Europe. And they, my one impression I had was that some of those countries are ahead of the U.S. in terms of the 
not so much the depth of the research, but the, the type of research, the things that they're looking at. And the last overall comment is there not, not only was there a lot of presentations and conversation about weatherization, but also green buildings. And this is the one where not only was there concern about some of the weatherization practices as they're being instituted and mandated even, there's even more concern about green building in that it's moving too fast without enough definition or uh, not so much regulation, but there's building materials and practices out there that are leading to, a lot of them feel, uh, uh, a lesser indoor environment. A specific that I heard that really shocked me, because I didn't think about it on my own, was a lot of the green building materials are more plant-based rather than solid wood or ceramic or or that sort of thing, but plant-based. There's soy products, there's other types, there's alternatives to the solid woods, especially the hardwoods and so forth. And what the microbiologists were saying is that they're seeing a whole different uh, profile of fungi and bacteria growing on those materials when they get damp. So there's we will will inadvertently changing the environment indoors with a lot of these things when we haven't really figured out what what's going on in uh, in contemporary uh, buildings. So. Just with those generalities there, Joe, I hope the the listeners can get a feel for the broad spectrum and the and the the depth and significance of what 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 went on there. Well, let me add, since you went into that area first, Carl, let me add to that. That is an area I wanted to go into a little more detail on because I found it fascinating that here on IAQ Radio, we've done three or four shows now on weatherization and whether or not it even does what people sometimes purport it does, and that does it save energy. Uh, we've got lawsuits over that very issue. And I got the impression there, and Carl, we're going to follow up on this because I find this fascinating, that the indoor air quality people were kind of giving it a pass with respect to energy savings. They kind of alluded to the fact that, all right, these green building programs are designed to save energy or be, you know, use more sustainable materials, et cetera. And they may be, uh, they may be succeeding in that arena, but there, there are, there's at least the potential that they're causing more indoor air quality problems. Whereas I find it fascinating that here on IAQ radio, we've been debating whether or not they even actually do save energy and whether or not we can verify that energy savings. And we've had Henry Gifford on, for, but with the lawsuit against the USGBC, et cetera. So that whole issue, although I don't want to slam the green building movement at all, I, I think that we do need to do things in a more sustainable fashion and that we need to save energy because of numerous reasons, not just because of the costs, and, uh, but there are a lot of reasons. But I agree that I think a lot of the serious researchers feel we're going at it very quickly, maybe too quickly, and that we need to be a little more careful. Cliff? Yeah, just a, just a comment. Um, what did the folk, the green building folks think was going to happen when you use more natural materials, more plant-based materials in a building? 
you know, particularly yeah. when, but, the, when those materials are certainly going to be more vulnerable to water and moisture intrusion and just high levels of moisture within the building. You know, what did they think was going to happen? And, you know, they're concentrating on VOCs and other things, but um, I don't know. Well, that was another interesting, you bring up VOCs. I mean, I, like I say, I, you know, I'm somewhat of a, a tree hugger here. I don't like to give my opinions too much on the show, but, you know, you and I can differ on these things. And uh, I agree with their concept and their goals, I guess I should say, but I don't know that there's been enough research into how we get there and whether we're going about it in the right way. A lot of things they're doing are really good. Uh, ventilation, you know, keep it like the Canadians. I know Robert Bean was listening and, you know, uh, what is it? Build it tight, ventilate it right, Robert. Maybe I have it wrong, but if you could type it in for me, I'd appreciate it. That's great stuff, and I think that's common sense, and that's something we should be doing, and, and many people in other countries are doing very well. But now you mentioned the VOCs, which is another interesting issue. Uh, you'll like this, actually. There were several sessions with people who evaluate the volatile organic compound emissions from building materials and the furnishings, et cetera, that we bring into buildings. And one of their concerns was, there were several, but one of them was that the products they specify or that they have approved oftentimes aren't really used and that people go to, you know, so their concern is at least one of them that, they can specify it, but if we don't get everybody on the same page and the contractors don't use them, then they may or may not be, you know, something of value. And then their other concern was the semi-volatiles, because as you develop new products, they don't off-gas as quickly, but over a longer period of time, there may be additional. And they use the Barbie doll as the example, like older Barbie dolls would kind of, I guess, you know, the, the chemical composition of them would degrade more quickly and now they don't degrade as quickly but there are still concerns about the semi-volatiles which was kind of a new area carl would you agree yeah it was a new area and now this this illustrates the the uh, how big this conference was that was one that i wanted to get to but i had to make a choice <laughs> between that and, uh, and another one but uh i want to add a new twist to the to the volatiles one of the sessions I attended was talking about lab procedures for identifying. This is where the, the researchers come in and say, okay, here's what's in these materials, here's how we detect it, and then how do we transfer it to the field? And that was the topic of this, uh, of this uh, panel, which uh, Don Weeks, as a matter of fact, uh, was chairing. And one of the things that I heard was that a, 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 a more a first question before how do we get it to the to the field is we've got to figure out what we're doing in the lab and here was one to me the one takeaway that was the most significant shift of all for me was in the past when researchers or others would say if we can't see it it doesn't exist and decisions were made, particularly in the courtroom, on that basis. What I heard these people say, and I talked to a number of other people, and I'm rather confident that it wasn't just me and my own perception of bias. What I was hearing this time was, if we don't see it, then we aren't testing correctly. 
because there's a lot of things out there that we that they know are there and they can't identify yet in the lab. So, I mean, there's some things that we know and there's a lot that we don't know and they are finding out there's even more they don't know. And I hope, going back to what you were saying, Joe, about some of the concerns, I hope that it, that lack of knowledge uh, is not exploited for the purpose of just profit, to make a buck. I can sell something and make money off of it by calling it green, and I don't really care. Or, which is usually the case, it's not that I don't care, it's that I believe enough that what I'm doing is good. But if it's not backed up by reality, by facts, then it may not be good, and we don't know it. We'll end up like we did in the mid-'70s when we tightened buildings to save energy but didn't figure out how to or even look at how to manage moisture accumulation because the buildings are tighter. You know, Carl, people think we, we planned this, but we didn't. Um, you, you've led me, you know, when you talk about not being able to measure things, one of the, I guess, for me, the highlight of the week was a, a presentation by, I guess you would call him the uh, rock star of science, uh, J. Craig Venter, Dr. Venter, with the uh, genomics. J. Craig Venter Institute is regarding regarded as the leading, you know, he's the leading scientist of the 21st century because of his, his numerous invaluable contributions to genomic research. Dr. Venter described what he does as metagenomics or digitizing biology and giving us a picture of the sequenced genome of biological organisms, including humans. Many of you probably realize that, that Dr. Venter was the, the first guy to crack the human genome, and he did it much more quickly than scientists thought would be possible. You may not be aware of what he's done since then, and he was one of the keynote speakers there, and he, he was fascinating. Let me just give you a couple quick statistics from Dr. Venter's presentation. The first one I think many of our listeners will already be familiar with, and that is that when the human genome was mapped, we found that there is a 1% to 3% difference between unrelated humans, so not a very big depending on your perspective, I guess, uh, not a tremendous amount of variability with respect to the human genome. But here, listen to these additional facts that Dr. Venter laid out. There are about 20,000 human genes. I think most people are somewhat familiar with that. But here's the one that blew my mind. There are 10 million microbial genes within each and every one of our bodies. So we've got 20,000 human genes in us, but what makes us up isn't just our human genes, it's also the, the flora within us, the biological flora within us. There are 1,000 microbes in my mouth as I speak to this on, on this microphone right here. And the ramifications of that are unbelievable. <laughs> Cliff went to the mouthwash after that one. Yeah, we've got a thousand well, microbes. Of the chloroceptic. Of the chloroceptic. <laughs> well, you know, it's just fascinating when you think about it. Now, listen to these others. He um, gave examples. Well, since the time of the human genome, Dr. Venter has gone out and he, he sailed around the world sampling ocean water. 
and they are mapping the genome of the biological organisms in the ocean. And uh, they also have begun now to map the air. And I've got some, some pretty interesting uh, pretty interesting facts on that. First, let's start with uh, what they called m- metabolomics. And that is where they have found there are 2,400 chemical compounds and 500 that's within the body, and 500 chemicals within the bloodstream. 60% of those come from our own metabolism, 30% come from our diet, and 10% come from what we feed our bacteria, was what he said. So you start to think about this, and and you think about your body as an ecology. Well, then, you know, that's mind-boggling enough, but then he goes into the fact that the Earth's biomass is one half, or the Earth is... Half of, half of the Earth's biomass is microbes, okay? So now they've mapped the genomes of the oceans around the world, and they've begun to map the genomes of the microbes in the air. Now, there's a huge difference in the difficulty in mapping the human genome than up to water sampling, which he said wasn't all that much more difficult, but the mapping of the air was tremendously difficult. And I know Dr. Wow will want to comment on this one. They used cyclone filter samplers and they had to collect for days or months to get enough data. And then one of the real difficulties of that was dealing with the contamination issues. So one of his examples was when they cleaned their equipment, they had to worry about whatever they were cleaning their equipment with what types of DNA they would find within that cleaning solution, whether it was, you know, some kind of purified water or whatever. So he said this was tremendously difficult to do. And I've got some examples for after the break of what they're finding because now they've moved on from doing the human genome to the genome in the oceans to the um, genome within the air outdoors, but they actually are working on the airs indoors. And what is in the indoor environment, I don't think we've ever even considered up until this point. But let's take a short break, go to our, thank our sponsors, and Carl will bring you right back. Folks, we're just going to thank our sponsors and come right back. Association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. 
And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, we are back with Carl Grimes, the indoor air quality president, uh, the Z-Man and I here. And I just want to finish what I started before the break, Carl, and then I want to get your comment on the Venter presentation. But before I do, I I wanted to go over the indoor air component of, of what he is doing. They're now doing indoor air sampling and digitizing the biology of the indoor air. And some of the statistics he gave during his presentation i was writing as fast as i could i I hope i got this all right and i'm going to double check it but anyway in new york city now we're talking new york city indoor air the major source of the dna in that indoor air is human sources okay the next largest category was rodents with other microbials being a small component so here we are focused on fungi in the air and you know fungi of course is part of the human uh, component as well to some degree but I find it interesting that rodent DNA was the next largest category within buildings in New York City then he went on to tell us that in hospitals where they're doing the same thing that's when microbial DNA becomes the number one source and he also mentioned we wonder why we get sick in hospitals, you know, because we're we're inhaling this. Um, and then on a at a building close to a pier in San Diego, the number one source there was insects. So some of the things you don't always think about when you're doing indoor environmental quality issues, these things really start to make you think a little differently. Now, you want to think about the, the possible consequences of these types of discoveries. And by the way, hospitals were also high in hits. For, from virus for, from fecal biome, which is another thing that I'll probably try not to think about the next time I have to go into a hospital. <laughs> but anyway, um, and the last thing I want to mention is they now have 60 million genes that have been sequenced. And these 60 million genes are the components of the future. Dr. Venter is now creating that. I don't know how you feel about this, folks. It's up to you to make your own, you know, judgment on this. But he is now creating new life forms using genome transplantation. And the they started with bacteria, and they were working with bacteria. And then, as I understand it, it was easier to create yeast. So they're taking some components of one thing and putting them together with other components of something else and coming up with something totally new. Carl? What were your thoughts on that presentation? Well, uh, it, it, it's it's um, almost beyond comprehension, um, and I can't get away from kind of the wow factor and the, the enthusiasm and also some of the, the mixed feelings that you just kind of alluded to there. There, there, there's a whole lot going on in that area beyond what he just says or related to it. I was just reading an article uh, 
in in New Scientist that's talking about dirt in that we think is just a, a natural thing, but scientists are finding certain areas where the dirt where it should be red oxide without much carbon in it is really fertile black dirt in locations locations where it really shouldn't be, and they're finding that. That's old settlements. That's where people were. And they kind of concluded with the statement of wherever people live, they change things. I would say that with what Dr. Ventner was saying is that wherever we are, it changes us. Uh, and we, don't, we don't live in a, in a one unidirectional world. Uh, it's, it's multidimensional. It's interactive. Wherever we are, we affect things, and they affect us, and we need to pay attention to that, not just on a global scale, regardless of your opinion about climate change or not, but when you look at buildings in the indoor environment, we can have effects we aren't even thinking of. There's another article I read a couple of weeks ago where with uh, the uh, uh, energy-saving lighting that we have, uh, that's really big in the building science realm right now. And one of the most energy-efficient lights, the most light for the least energy, is LEDs. Well, the spectrum of LEDs is very different. It tends to be very blue with less yellow, where incandescents are more yellow with less blue. Neither one are full spectrum, but here's the key. The blue light suppresses serotonin and uh, increases melatonin, um, well, I'm sorry, it's the other way. It increases, it increases serotonin and reduces melatonin and tends to wake us up. So as we watch television, as we look, read computers, we use our computers at night, it's actually changing the biochemistry to keep us awake. And if we throw in the blue LEDs for lighting in, in houses anyway, what's this going to do? Less sleep? Uh, and all the health effects uh, uh, from from the lack of sleep or disturbed sleep, we really, all of us collectively, don't really have know much about what we're doing to ourselves. And um, few people, at least some people out there, the renegades, the envelope pushers, you know, the ones that are really out there on the as an outlier on on looking at things. Some of them are kooks, but some of them are right. And we've got to figure out a way to evaluate this information. Um, kind of coming back to the theme so far today, Joe, where we talk about you and I are really excited and pumped up about a lot that we learned. But how do we evaluate all this? How do we use this to decide how we're going to live our life and then more specifically and more relevant to your radio program and our industry and Indoor Air Quality Association and so forth is – how how do we how do we make our decisions on what to incorporate in our business and how do we how do we make that decision and how how do we justify it so that we're still relevant to the clients that we are serving? Um, that's more that's a bigger question than I can than I can answer, Joe. But uh, that's that's part of for me. The, one of the implications of what I learned at this conference, uh, there, there's something huge starting to happen out there. 
There really is, Carl. And let, let me add, uh, I've got a text from, from Robert Bean, I believe, and I, I think he sums it up really well. What you breathe today has the potential to affect your offspring. Now let me reinforce that a little bit because there was a, a, a scientist, Dr. Woodruff, on Tracy Woodruff, an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive, Reproductive Sciences and Pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. And she's the director of, of the program on reproductive health and the environment. And I spent a lot of time, for some reason, Lou Harriman, who's a past guest on the show, and I ended up in the same place a lot. But I missed Dr. Woodruff's presentation on the morning of Tuesday, June the 7th. And, and what Lou kind of he brought it down to a real quick point for me he talked to me about the fact that she mentioned that we need to rethink how we consider exposure in that it's not just the exposure amount and or necessarily the susceptibility of the person although this ties in it's when you get that exposure and that when young children get certain exposures the amount, of course, is still important, but when they get that exposure is vitally important. And they were talking there about uh, her presentation was uh, evaluating prenatal exposures to environmental chem chemicals and the related adverse pregnancy outcomes, etc. I, I want to get Lou on to talk a little bit more about that. I also want to let listeners know we typed in a kind of a I don't know what we, I guess it's kind of a definition that some of the ventilation gurus are looking at, Hal Levin and some of the people from the ASHRAE ventilation standards committees were there. And, you know, ventilation standards have been kind of arbitrarily established over the years without any, you know, we, we've studied it for years, but it's really hard to get a, a firm grip on what the ventilation standards for, would be. So this was the the kind of starting point that they put out for people to look at and to get back with comments on. And I'll have Dr. Wow look at that, and I'll, uh, I'll get it out to the listeners in just a minute. But um, the other thing, before we go to that, Carl, there was one other fairly new area, and I know this is one of interest to you. There were a lot of presentations and discussion about physician-informed assessments is what I would call it. And I wanted you to comment on that for our listeners, if you would. Yeah, I, I'd be more than happy to, especially since I, I put together a, a forum panel on the first morning that was entitled Meeting IAQ Requirements Through Physician-Informed Assessments, Indoor Environmental Assessments. Um, First, though, one of the statistics given at the opening night uh, reception was that 16% uh, of the attendees at this conference uh, were in the, was in the health category. And I was surprised at how many physicians were there, and even building scientists, uh, for example, in that panel, in the audience, the first question was, well, what what is uh, what what's the condition what's the situation of the occupant if somebody's sick what's going on so we can take a look at the building now the mirror side of that was 
in that in that presentation, and it was geared toward building scientists. It was geared uh, toward um, architects, building designers, the researchers in this. And this is the one, not negative, but one failing of any kind of uh, conference is the people that needed to hear what these physicians were saying were not in the audience. Okay? Yep. The, the two building scientists in there, they already understand this, and they were seeking more information. But the ones that need to hear this weren't in the audience. And it's kind of like, well, when you have a lot of choices and a lot too many things to get to, then what you can really get to, you pick certain ones. They're going to be familiar. They're going to be of highest interest. And how, do, how, does, a, how does a conference get people to attend certain topics that they normally wouldn't uh, because that's too far outside the box, but yet that's exactly what they need to hear, something outside the box uh, that might spark that one point of creativity to create to, uh, to create something new. So, yeah, there, there were a lot of physicians there. There were a lot of people in, in, in health there, public and private sector both. That was a huge part of this conference, Joe. It surprised me how many presentations talked about health, how many presentations talked about assessing the experience of the occupant. Uh, there must have been eight or ten different assessment tools all in one, all in one section. And then there were some others there, such as uh, Dr. Claudia Miller with her, with her assessment tool also. Uh, HUD put on a symposium um, uh, on Wednesday, or actually Tuesday afternoon, we're talking about assessment tools from around the world. They had one from the U.K., they talked about from New Zealand, and uh, a couple from the U.S., including uh, Kevin Kennedy talking about what Children's Mercy Hospital is doing. And so it was very pleased. I was very pleased. You were right to say that, Joe, that there's a lot of focus on the occupant and what's the experience of the occupant and not just what's the statistical uh, correlation of X to Y, irrespective of the occupant. Let's eliminate the occupant first because they're an anomaly. It's subjective. It's anecdotal. We don't know how to deal with it. Let's get down to brass tacks of some good science here. I'm seeing it really shift in the direction of what good is the science of indoor air quality if it doesn't help the occupant. And I, I guess I hadn't stated that way before, Joe, but that would be the second big overall takeaway that I would have from this conference. That was a trend that um, I, I saw really strong, and uh, thank you for, for uh, leading our conversation in that direction because that was, a, that was a new realization for me. Well, you know, before we go into the other con areas of continuing interest, and one of them, of course, is ventilation, and I, I put the statement up for those of you that are on the you know, online, you can re you can look at that statement. We want to talk about that in a moment. I sent it to Dr. Wow earlier. I'm going to bring him uh, back on in, in just a moment. But uh, what what I wanted what I wanted to do at this point, Carl, was uh, you know, kind of take it take it full circle. We had all of these people from all over the country, all over the world, and what I thought was really another interesting and, as I understand it, new focus was how can we as practitioners, uh, 
assist the researchers with figuring out what we need and then you know how can we as practitioners learn from what already exists that the researchers have and that's what i've you know kind of build the show as is that we're going to overview ie 2011 indoor air 2011 and that we we would like to talk about that a little bit more now this was the first time they tried it carl as i understand it and you know it was it was well received the researchers were very interested in trying to answer questions from the practitioners i think some of the practitioners were a little I don't know if you'd call it intimidated, but they, you know, there were a few that were up asking a lot of questions, but a lot kind of held back. I know Don Weeks did a great job of gathering questions beforehand, but I'm curious, Carl, what were your thoughts on the interaction between the researchers and the practitioners, and how can we get the research community to kind of move toward helping with our specific issues and concerns, and how can we make sure that our listeners and our practitioners out there know what's already pretty much been learned? Um, I'm going to use the example of what you and I are doing right now, Joe. We need to talk. We need to have conversations, whether it's on the phone, in person, via email or Facebook, or hopefully not Twitter. (laughs) We can't condense it into 140 characters (laughs) that easily. Uh, Because not only were the not enough of the right people in that physician-informed indoor assessment uh, uh, presentation, but uh, there there was not animosity, there was not uh, uh, walls built between us or anything, walls were being broken down, in fact, but there still wasn't enough interaction. And let me just give one quick example, and it goes back to our friend uh, Lou Harriman again. In the, uh, in the in the biome, uh, all full days, series of presentations where they're talking about analyzing in some very interesting, fascinating ways uh, the bacteria and the fungi and other biologicals in buildings and under different conditions and how it changes and how the building conditions changes, which ones uh, proliferate and which ones don't, even from one part of a building to another. All this type of research and everything else, and Lou got up there and said, from a practitioner point of view, he made a couple of three points. One was, when you do moisture measurements in building, you've got to do that to see where things will grow differently, not grow versus not grow, but grow differently. He says, the the distribution of moisture in a building, even within the same material in the same location, is not uniform, and he had a very precise uh, uh, description of that. And another one was we've got to stop looking at relative humidity. It's not the humidity in the air that determines uh, microbial growth, whether mold or bacteria. It's although it's important and it's an influence, it's really the RH, if you will, at the surface. What's the available water on the surface? And he had a picture there showing instruments measuring temperature in air and two point in the air, and the other one aimed up at the ceiling to show the temperature up there. It was mold-covered ceiling tile, almost at the same temperature, very near the dew point. His point was, if you look at the RH, it was like 54%, like there's 50-something percent like that. He says, that's not a problem. But when you look at what's going on on the surface, that's a problem. 
those were points that none of the researchers had dealt with. Now, that doesn't mean that what they did was unimportant or irrelevant. No, it's very important. But it's that type of information. What do we find in the field that we don't have answers for? This is one of the questions that I ask in this uh, physician's uh, panel of the, the building scientists and others. We've presented to you, here's what we do, here's what we deal with, here's what we know, but here's what we need from you. And by the way, what do you need from us? And we didn't have enough of the right people to really get a good conversation going, but that's something that I would like to see, not just ISEAC, but the Indoor Air Quality Association. I'm president of it, you know. <laughs> this is something that I want on our agenda of how does Indoor Air Quality Association advance this so that we have a conversation of, like you and I are having this morning, but other people. Because what you and I have talked about, Joe, has triggered off thoughts uh, for me and uh, a reformulating of some of my experience in a way that I hadn't thought about until you made a statement or asked me a question. If this conference just is over now and nothing comes of it, then it was a waste. But the way you keep it alive and the way it grows is for people, whether through organizations or themselves individually, is to create conversation, ask a question, make a statement. Let's talk about it. Let's not fight about it. Yeah, I'm right and you're wrong and that sort of thing. But the way you framed it today, Joe, here was my experience. What was your experience? Here's what I noticed. What did you notice? And it sparks off that creativity. That's what we need more of. You know, Carl, I appreciate that, and I also would like to mention that we intend to do that here. I mean, we will continue to discuss this issue. We'll continue to push the researchers to talk to the practitioners and the practitioners to talk to the researchers and then to try and follow through and make sure that uh, we are on the same page as much as possible. One of the main problems I saw in doing so was that we don't necessarily speak the same language. And that's a real concern for me. And I don't, I don't mean the practitioners. I mean the researchers really didn't understand our language. Now, I have to fix the way I ask questions, obviously. I, I got people that came up to me after I asked a question and said, you know, I understand what you're saying, and that's a great question, but I don't think they understood what you were saying. So I have to learn how to rephrase what I say when I speak to these researchers. Now, we've probably had 35 or 40 of the people that were at that conference on this show, over 210 shows. And I guarantee you we will have another 35 or 40 new ones after this week because we, I met so many people that are, you know, the, the, I met the godfather of IAQ and a bunch of others, and they, they have promised to come on the show. So what we need to do is, is – develop a common language and get a certain base level of understanding of what each group does. They need to know, for instance, when I explain, when I asked a question about exposure limits, you know, there was a, a session on practitioners and exposure limits, and I asked a question about exposure limits. My concern wasn't exposure limits for people in indoor environments. My concern was some kind of way of telling people who are working in these wet damp environments every day cleaning this crap up how do we tell them and, and how do we definitively let them know what the potential issues 
are down the road for them if they don't use certain engineering controls and personal protective equipment and et cetera. Intuitively, I think we all know there are these potential issues, but I can't point to any science right now that says if you continue doing water damage restoration on a daily basis or cleaning smoke-damaged buildings or uh, cleaning mold or doing HVAC cleaning or doing HVAC maintenance and you don't protect yourself and use the right PPE and the certain engineering controls, you've got a 50% greater chance of developing X. I can't do that right now, although we are starting to get there for people in indoor environments. So let's get uh, Dr. Wow on the line. I want to go to the ventilation issue. For those of you that are online, you can see we just put up here a statement that came out in a working session with a bunch of the ventilation folks. And, and you know, there's been issues over the years about ventilation rates and and how much outdoor air we need to bring into buildings for the building to be a good indoor environment. And those rates have been set somewhat arbitrarily over the years. They use the best science that's available, but unfortunately we don't always have all the answers when we establish these standards. And sometimes we have to do the best with the information we have. And the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers has been doing that for years. Well, the guys put out a statement, and and it was on ventilation, and they said we should consider identifying a ventilation rate that will act as a unit or reference value and would represent the minimum ventilation rate, some magic number, based on the occupancy in a clean room without sources, so no furnishings or anything like that, and assure that the incoming air, the outdoor air, is clean. So it's not high levels of PM 2.5 or high levels of, uh, I guess, pollen and other allergens, but that that is, uh, you know, at some level clean. What is that minimum ventilation rate? And then I think what they would like to do is build off of that based on the other parameters. So is the outdoor air clean? is are there what are the furnishings in the room what type of room is it what type of room within what type of building is it etc and i'd like to bring dr wow in now and get his comments and then carl's comments and then we're gonna have to wrap this up oh my goodness it's 1258 or go ahead Dieter. Well, Carl, there is a little bit of Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, we don't have enough time. I have a whole uh, eight and a half by eleven sheet uh, full of notes that I made, and I kind of will try to summarize because a lot of points were made by Carl and by uh, uh, Joe. Uh, uh, about the meeting and the interests and the hot subjects of yeah, 2011. But let's go back chronologically, and I like to do that. The indoor environment is very, very new. Our not so, it's not 444444 fathers. 200 years ago, we didn't have architects, there was no air conditioning, certainly no TV. We didn't spend a lot of time indoors. 
Uh, we didn't have a TV because you had to work for a living, like planting and working in the garden. At that time, asthma and allergies were virtually unknown. It didn't. There wasn't anything there. <coughs> Somebody may have gotten it and suffers from poison ivy or something like that. So we are over there. At that time, I tried to do that chronologically. We knew that, fortunately, the genes in the human body are different. It's one of the reasons why Carl and Joe and I and Cliff do not look alike. <laughs> that, that small 1% to 3% sure makes a big difference. Yeah, that, huh? that's right. <laughs> uh, the, other, uh, the other thing, I just have another one over here. I think we, are, I think we ought to train the people who are building the walls and the roof in which we are living. They are called architects, I think. And yet, when I grew up, there were no plastics. I said that on another show. I grew up with glass, wood, and stone. That was it. There were no plastics. And uh, so that is one thing. The next thing is ventilation. And you, you, it was mentioned Ten times today, to me, and Joe knows that, uh, to me, ventilation is the most important thing in the world. Joe knows that we talked about that ten years ago or, the, or nine years ago, and I solved a lot of problems by looking at the ventilation and doing it right. What else do I have? Uh, congratulations, Andy. He won again. <laughs> yep. And um, interestingly, you mentioned that, and I can mention that one. When I went to the School of Engineering at the University of Pittsburgh somewhere in 1960, there were two women, at, at first one woman, in the whole School of Engineering, several hundred uh, students. And, of course, everybody knew them because, hey, that, that was a chick, you know, what the hell is she doing in engineering? Women were not allowed to learn anything about math and engineering. I never learned how to type in Germany because boys did not use the typewriter. That was girl stuff. Yep. Thank God my grandmother taught me how to sew. But isn't it fascinating? So I have you know, Dieter, you, 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 Go ahead. you talk about 200 years ago and you're, you're dead on. And then you talk about when you were a kid, which is, you know, let's say 60 years ago. And... Kind of, yeah. <laughs> what a dramatic change over what some of us that are getting a little older now would consider to be a very short period of time. And things are only changing even more quickly. So it kind of reinforces that what we yeah. do is really important here. All new building materials, uh, you know, all that stuff that we are all of a sudden. And, and I think one of the major factors that I didn't see is is the amount of time we are spending indoors. Yep. You, know, you don't go outside in the garden and watch TV. That's when I plant my tomatoes. And you know, you're sitting inside the house, and you have an air conditioner. said, hey, close the damn window. Close the door. You know, it costs us money. We can't have that. So right there, I think we have a problem with, that indoor air uh, uh, quality. 
Well, you know, they did, and I, I neglected. I'm glad you brought that up, Dieter. I want to make sure that people realize they, they also had a lot of presentations on, on thermal comfort, for instance, on the biological components of, of the indoor environment. They had a lot on the chemical constituents that are, are being brought into the indoor. There's 1,200 papers on this stick, which, by the way, yeah. should be available well, soon well, at uh, isiac.org, I-S-I-A-Q.org. Go ahead, Dieter. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, right now I, I, I adjust a little bit over here. Um, the outside temperature in Pittsburgh right now is 87 degrees, and I set my thermostat at 77 indoors, and I'm happy. Yeah. Right. If I, yeah, I don't have to put it at 68 to be nice and cold and cool and air conditioning. But I, I think that is another thing. You go into a mall, you go into a shop, all of a sudden, yeah, they button up everything and they said, hey, you know, this is the electricity we are going to save if we are button up everything. And I think that is another problem. You know, and I don't know what, what the VOCs are which do it. I have no idea. I never, ever in my lifetime will figure that one out. But I know there is something in the air that shouldn't be there. <laughs> well, you bring up a good point, Dieter. That tightening, yeah, it may save a little electricity, but, but the research shows now that the loss in productivity from not having a good indoor environment makes the energy savings pale in comparison. Uh, the the lost work days, the, the lost productivity, the people work slower, So a wonderful, wonderful point. You know, you know, I started my professional career when the Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA Act of 1970, December 29th of 1970, uh, was passed, and everybody said, Oh, the government is doing this and the government is doing that. They shouldn't be able to. I know what I'm doing. Interestingly, we have learned, and that's exactly the point that you made, if you offer a better working environment, and you can translate that one into an indoor environment, if you uh, provide a better working environment, the productivity goes up. OSHA paid for itself, uh, itself in the long run. And I think that is an incredibly important point. Absolutely, Dieter. Well, yeah. you know, save that page of notes, if you would, because uh, <laughs> we're, we're running over here, and I would love to you know, go back into this issue a little bit more. Well, I'm sure we will, and I know you recruited a couple of speakers from the meeting. Absolutely. And obviously they will touch on subjects that we, yeah, I mean, we, we, we talked about, what, 50 different subjects today? Right. Something like that. A lot. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that some of them will come. Uh, I don't know a heck of a lot about genomes, but I certainly would like to listen to it. That's the one but, that might be tough to get. He's the rock star. We'll try. Yeah, and <clears throat> I'm sure we're going to talk about, of all of the subjects which we mentioned today from, yeah, Quote, indoor air environment. That's right. I have another one on caves. Your know, caves were quite well ventilated because the cave people learned in a hurry that carbon monoxide, they didn't know what carbon monoxide was, but that, <laughs> that having a fire in an enclosed in, in room is not good for you. <laughs> so, uh, 
uh, we learned that one over there. So they, they needed how, uh, uh, to ventilate. The Indians pitched tents. Yeah, if you have, if you live in a tent, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> Never an indoor air problem. We've learned a lot through that, trial and error, huh? Yeah, unless you pitch your tent over hazardous waste disposal site. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, and I'm going to be talking about that in Denver in another week at the National Healthy Homes Conference. It's called the Historical Persistence of Unhealthy Homes, and I start with the cave. Just like absolutely, I think here. it's wonderful. That's that's a great. We learned a lot from those people. <laughs> well, you know, Carl, I I want to first thank you for joining me. I I got on a I got on a roll there, and I apologize. I didn't come back to you a little more often. I lost track. It was one o'clock before I knew it, so uh, I I apologize. But before we go, I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to add anything that we missed, or at least lead us down the road to the next session. Well. I, I would conclude with um, one is that, you know, the, the, we started off with thanking people and we continued it. And I'm, I, I'm president of uh, Indoor Air Quality Association, and uh, I uh, failed to uh, state that we were one of the platinum sponsors of Indoor Air 2011. We're committed to it, not only in that way, but in some other ways. And I'm going to do all I can to help um, IAQA and anyone else that's interested to continue this conversation. You, you and Dieter just talked about continuing the conversation, getting other people on to talk about it. I guess that's the theme that I would like to um, um, really advocate here, is to continue this conversation that you and I had and that other people that I know from the, not just the IAQA board of directors, but other IAQA members and people we know and other organizations that were there, we, we need to continue the conversation. And uh, I'm personally willing, and I will do what I can to influence the Indoor Air Quality Association uh, uh, to set up forums or some sort of structure or something so that we can continue this conversation. And Joe, thank you very much for asking me to be on. This this was a, a wonderful, animated, energetic conversation, and it just needs to continue. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Carl. I want to thank Carl Grimes, IAQA president, Healthy Habitats, IESO, the, the volunteer itis uh, guy of the of the year here. Carl, you're you're Near and dear to us here at IAQ Radio, we do appreciate you joining us. Of course, we always, always appreciate our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us. Dieter, your comments are always dead on, and we really appreciate you coming in week after week. I want to thank the Z-Man for letting me kind of take over the mic this week. I appreciate that a great deal. Cliff, always a pleasure. And Austin. Austin Stone Cold Novak for helping us out at the controls here. I also want to make sure I thank, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We had a nice online group today. A lot of uh, great people. I'm sure we'll have a bunch of downloads from this one as well. And uh, we want to make sure we thank you. Please come back next week. We've got uh, we're going to talk moisture meters, which is kind of moisture interesting. Moisture meters, um, yeah, people. folks are going to come on. We're going to talk about moisture Paul meters Lorenzi, next right. week. Paul Lorenzi will be here as our guest, and then we're going to take and continue this conversation. And maybe it'll be five more years, but uh, we'll keep on working at it. But most importantly, again, thanks to our listeners. We'll see you back here next week for the next edition of IAQ Radio.
has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.